And good morning. It's uh, David Siddons with the David Siddons Group and our podcast, Better Decisions. Today, I had the absolute pleasure of talking to my good friend, George, George Sarkis, who is CEO of the Sarkis Group in Boston, uh, the number one element team in Boston, Massachusetts. George, thank you for coming on the, uh, on the show. Um, tell everyone who you are and, and, and what you do. Uh, thanks for having me today. Uh, it's a it's a pleasure to be here, and you know we've uh, we've had a great relationship over the years, and I consider you a good friend as well. So I am the CEO of the Sarkis team at Douglas Elliman. Elliman is uh, new to Boston four years ago, and um, my brother Manny and I started a team here, and we've grown it over the last four years to being the top team, and we have. We, we have a, a great team behind us, and we have the pleasure of working with individuals all across the country at Douglas Elliman, such as David here. So it's great to be here, and thanks for having me again. Thank you, George. Thank you. So let's go into the Boston market a little bit. For, for, for the audience who doesn't know, explain the Boston, like what is the Boston market? How do you divide it? How do you understand it, um, first of all, just to kind of set an understanding of geography? So Boston is obviously we're in the Northeast and we're one of the primary cities in the Northeast. And it's really because of the fundamentals the city has. And those fundamentals have always been known as how I like to say it, meds and eds, which is medical and education. Uh, we have some of the best hospitals in the country from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, Brigham and Women's Mass General Hospital and many others, uh, Beth Israel and et cetera, et cetera. And we have education, eds, the best colleges in the country and in the world. Um, we have MIT, Harvard, I dropped my R right there, um, Boston College, Boston University, Tufts, uh, Emerson, Berkeley School of Music, which many famous artists have uh, attended. And, and, and the list goes on. And it's always been the drivers, not to mention eds as well, education, the top private high schools in the country. We have people from all over the world coming here, buying residences, moving here simply so their children could even go to high school and elementary schools, the best autistic schools, um, special education schools in the world. They're ranked. So we've always had those two drivers, meds and eds. And now we have a surge in two other categories, which is pharma, um, pharmaceuticals, which is we have companies such as Moderna and Pfizer, who obviously are in Cambridge and um, had a big, um, big role in the vaccine and getting that rolled out. And now we have a surge in tech. Um, we have companies such as Toast, um, Whoop, which is the fitness band I'm, I'm rocking right now. Yeah, um, a good friend of mine's a CEO and the founder, and he started it in his dorm room at Harvard University. And um, he has 1,300 employees now. And it, it, there's companies like Whoop. There's probably 10 or 15 other startups. Boston is now, I think, amongst the top 10 um, states in the country for high net worth individuals under the age of 40. We're in the top 10 now. Wow. Um, and I think we're creeping up to the top five. So 
I mean, Boston has the fundamentals, not to mention it is a small city. It's not New York. It's not LA. It's, it's a small city with the fundamentals. Obviously, people get a little nervous about the cold weather in the winter, but that's why we have people like David over here who can help uh, find them a place for the winters in South Beach where the sun is shining bright and the waves are coming in. Yeah, I mean, Boston's beautiful in the summer. Obviously, if you you know want a bit of warmth in the winter, come on down to Miami. Um, and this is obviously our relationship has, has developed over the years because there's sure. a synergy between Boston and, um, and Miami. Now, you have an insane client roster. We won't go into it, but I know that you have an insane client roster of, of you know, sportsmen and entertainers and, and really the, the, the guys who are buying ultra prime real estate. And the reality is, is this is what we do. We sell that high level real estate. We have big teams. We're selling to a degree, a bit of a range of product, but our focus is on, on the ultra prime market. Take us through, and again, I think what's good to do the reason of doing this podcast just to be clear so people watching understand where this is going is to understand the market the wider macro market because if you understand boston you also need to understand what's going on in the rest of the country so you can kind of see how it plays into the big picture the luxury market since um let's say let's start going back to 2020 when obviously kind of COVID hit, and then we kind of went through the process. Take us through what you've been seeing. And, and if you want to go back further, go back further. But but take us through a bit of the history of your luxury market and how it's developed and, and where it went in the last couple of years and where it's going. So over the last couple of years, we've seen, obviously, a couple of different trends. Boston, even coming to 2019, 2020, when I have to talk to lenders and um deal with investors for some of these developers who were putting up high rises and luxury developments and condos in Boston. You have to talk to developers, investors in the banks to kind of when they're underwriting the project. And you've, I've always had to go and give them a pipeline report, which is what is what's in the pipeline, what's currently selling. And I always hand them a list of say seven to eight buildings and they say, where are the rest? So there isn't any more. These are, there's only eight luxury condo buildings going up and they say that's impossible and I say it's not possible the data doesn't lie so I show it to them and and they're like wow and that's where that that's where Boston has been able to push pricing so in 18 and 19 we had two buildings that came up um in the seaport um well prior to that 16 17 we had two buildings that were closing out in the seaport district which is one of the new prime more primary areas and neighborhoods in Boston now the Seaport District was parking lots and um, industrial buildings right off of the waterfront, and they built it up and kind of reminds me of a little Dubai, Vegas now. You kind of go over a bridge, and there was nothing there, and now it's just towers and high-rises. And it's, I mean, we've had record prices there going back to 1819, 4,500 a foot building called Pier 4. 4,500 a square foot, that's that that's a lot. 4,500, that's, yeah. that's rivaling, like, top level Miami numbers. Yeah, 4,500 a foot once again, supply and demand on the water. There's no other dirt. If, if this is a primary building on the water in downtown in the Seaport District. So we had, a, we had a hot, hot market. And then obviously 2020 came and COVID was a thing. So what happened in 2020 was the numbers transaction-wise went down. People were really 
unsure as in every market in the beginning. I'm sure even in Florida, the first the couple same. months were a little shaky. People sitting on the sidelines, not understanding what's really happening. Not only they weren't really thinking about spending money, they were thinking about their health, their families. So Boston just had a little slow period for about two to three months. But mm -hmm. then we also, then we saw a big shift in the market going to the suburbs. It was a, a 20 to 21, you saw a shift going to the suburbs. Transactions were down in downtown Boston significantly, but prices were not. Prices held their own. I mean, they, they stayed. Uh, some price, we even had record price, record breaking sales during that period because people who had the money went bigger. So they went from that 2,500 a foot unit to that 4,500 a foot, 4,500 foot unit with private outdoor space. Um, some people did combo units so they could have a guest come and sleep, stay over. So you saw bigger numbers, but less on the transaction. So the low end, your 1 million or sub 2 million, you know, was a little shaky, but everyone shifted to the suburbs. And then you saw record prices in the suburbs. We had a record sale of $41 million that uh, we did in Brookline. Um, next, it was, it was the former CEO of Reebok, Paul Fireman, and that home had been on the market for, I think, five years. We took it over. Uh, we were the third team on, on, on the listing, and, you know, it was a 14-acre, it was a home on 14 acres. I went in there with a strategy of splitting it up let's sell the home with seven acres, which we yielded about 23 million. And then I said, why don't we subdivide? So I went through the whole process of getting a subdivision done for the seven acres, which we were able to build five homes on, $10 million homes. And we sold that off for 18. So net 41, Smart. 23 and 18. Um, COVID helped there. You know, someone wanted the big house, 25,000 feet, seven acres, privacy, um, and that was really good for that sale. And there was a lot of bigger homes now in the suburbs that, as I told you, that home was sitting on the market for four or five years. Um, people didn't want that much space. They didn't want that much land for maintenance and upkeep, but there was a shift in the suburbs and it was primary markets like Brookline, Newton, Wellesley, Weston, four of the top suburb towns uh, within 15 to 20 minutes of uh, Boston proper. And those markets took off and there was no inventory. You couldn't find a house that was 10,000 plus square feet. And at that point, I realized how much wealth there was in the city of Boston and in the world because people had their condos in the city and they didn't have to sell them. They would leave them. They would, they would keep them vacant and you know, they would go and they would make a purchase cash cash because it got super competitive. A lot of these clients ended up, you know, financing it when the rates were really, um, really good in 2021, 2020, but just to get the home done and to close in 30 days because they wanted to be in the house. They yeah. wanted to get out of the city. So they would try to close in 20 days if they could. And yeah. I just saw these transfers and this money and these transactions and, and it was crazy. And then, you know, the suburbs took off and then the city came back last year. But even last year, absorption was still up. Transactions were down a little, 
but absorption was up because record price, the high end was, was keeping the market where it was on the absorption level. So um, you would see transactions down nine to 10% and say like year to date today, for example, year to date today, transactions are 1635. This is in downtown Boston, luxury full service buildings. Transactions, we've had about six, 1600 transactions. Last year, same week, year to date, 1800 transactions. So we have 200 transactions less this year, but the absorption year to date is up about 200 million. Wow. So we're up up on absorption so we're up about 6.82 percent on the on the total absorption of downtown boston which means the high end is holding its own you know we have more five million dollar sales more four million dollar sales than we've ever had i think that is that that's very much a parallel to miami i mean the key thing here is understanding your equivalent neighborhoods to the miami neighborhoods and for us it's Coconut Grove, Coral Gables, Pinecrest, Ponce Davis, and these gated communities that we have, like Snapper Creek and Gables Estates. And we had the same thing. We had buying up of these single-family homes and record-breaking sales. We saw record-breaking on Lagosse Island and Indian Creek Island and Venetian Islands. Um, people moving out, um, moving out of uh, the, the kind of condo environment, um, but buying up. And there was a lot of liquidity. I think the realization there's a lot of liquidity that's been moving around. Um, and the market's obviously doing really, really well as a result of it. And then obviously coming out once uh, everyone got their shots, the condo market came back, started to do really, really well. Um, but you don't have a lot of that condo product. As you said, you've got, what, eight or nine buildings? Yeah, I mean, we, I mean, there's a lot of buildings in Boston. I mean, like you have the Ritz-Carlton residences that were done in, in the 90s into early 2000s, but new construction new product 2015 plus there hasn't been much i mean there's been probably 10 premier buildings i mean it's it's like you have other buildings it's like you you have your primary buildings in in miami obviously you have the older buildings like the ritz the old ritz carlton residences yeah. for example i mean those price per square foot wise is don't compare to a newer building in in florida but boston is you know, we've had probably nine to 10 new full service buildings, um, but we've also had some of the older buildings like the Mandarin Oriental on Boylston Street. There's been resales in that building just about, I think a couple months ago, 33, 3,400 a foot resales. Yeah. Um, and those aren't new buildings. So some of the older buildings um, are holding their own uh, one thing that Boston that I've seen in Boston is is when you have a flag in a branded residence, it's it's different, and I've realized why, and it's because we're turning into a global city. You have you have a lot of international buyers coming in. So when you say flag, j- just explain flag. I mean you're talking about brand names. When you're saying flag, you mean like yeah. the Ritz or St. Regis or something like that. Four Seasons, Ritz, Mandarin, mm-hmm. these, these international buyers or even these national buyers coming from other cities where they own a Ritz-Carlton in Miami 
or they own a St. Regis in my St. Regis. Is there a St. Regis in Florida? Yeah, there's actually, funnily enough, there's one currently in Bell Harbor and they're building two, one more in Brickell and there's another one going in Sunny Isle. So there's going to be three oh, St. Regis's. Yeah. 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 Yes. And, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting to have that observation go on that around the country, when you're coming into a city and you see these brand names, recognized hospitality brand names that exist, they are holding the money. We actually, the record sales in Miami for the last six months, out of the top, the, the, two of them were in a building called Plaza de la Luna in Fisher Island, but two of them and, and more below that were actually the four seasons in Surfside that came in around 4,500 a square foot, which was the top of our market goes to prove it yeah that's what it is it's it's the branded residences even if there isn't i know in florida i think people like the hotel component a little more because i think florida is more of a secondary housing market for some of these residences in these condo buildings um specifically people coming from boston they want to go and they want to buy a condo um in florida because they want to just shut their door and leave they don't want to deal with the maintenance and the upkeep of a home. They're not primary, even though they are now shifting to becoming primary residences because they can save a lot of money if they're there for a specific amount of time. I believe it's, yeah, just one day over half the year. And, and absolutely. They, and and the, they reap the tax. The, the move we've seen down here in South Florida, and I think you kind of touched on it, was that people want bigger units. And we've seen that with our new construction, they've moved away from these, let's build 12, 14, 1500 square foot units. Let's build 2,500, 3,500, 4,500, 6,000 square foot units, because it's essentially a vertical living um, uh, psychology. We want like that house in the sky. And you've had that as well in Boston. Yes, but not as much in Boston. Um, it, I mean, right now, Boston, you don't have many 3,000. What, what is what people know? I know what people want in Florida because I've spoken to some of my buyers who have went down there who have looked. Uh, they want one floor of living. And you guys have that there. 3,000 mm-hmm. feet, 4,000 feet, one yep. level of living. Because the, I, I think the people, or I know my clients here that are moving and thinking about buying in Florida – they, they're empty nesters, you know, they've sold the big house in the Brooklines, Westons and Wellesleys, and they want easy living. You know, they're probably 60 plus years old. They don't want stairs. They want one level of living, but they also want the space because they're selling these 10,000 square foot homes in the suburbs. So they can't go from 10,000 feet to 2000 feet but they can go from 10,000 to 4,000 or 10,000 to 3,500. They just need the four bedrooms or the three plus den. Yeah, which can work at around the 3,000. I wanted to touch on the, the, the suburbs, the housing, particularly supply chain and construction, because one of the issues that we've had down here in South Florida is everybody's been coming and moving down and wanting to buy newer homes or new built homes. But new homes account amount in certain neighborhoods between 10 and 14% of the total amount of inventory, and sometimes even less. So they can't build these new homes fast enough. And and at the ultra luxury side of the market, these aren't, you know, homes you can churn out and build in a year, it takes three to three and a half years to build this product. Um, 
what is the appetite in the suburbs in Boston? Um, it's there's been supply chain issues and it's it's been um it's been stressful for us agents here when we're representing buyers or if we're on the sales side um, representing the developers or the builders because there's been a lot of delays and those delays have held up certificate of occupancies um, and you know from glass doors to railings to things that you need to have done for final sign-offs um, and what it's done is it's it's really affected buyers who had a rate lock and were told they could close say may 1st and they still haven't been able to close because their bank will not finance their loan and i've had buyers get hit with a lot of um, rate lock extensions um, some of them lose their rates which will cost them could cost them close to four or five hundred thousand over the lifetime of the loan so it's mm -hmm. been stressful. It's out of the developer's hands, obviously, because of supply chain issues. I mean, you can't get a certificate of occupancy without an appliance package. And, um, if, and if the appliances are backed up or, you know, two or three weeks late, that does affect a buyer on a rate lock. Yeah. Um, and that's really affected us. So we're trying to really get a conservative close date. And you've seen some homes that are just still where they are from two months ago or three months ago. They haven't, because they get, you have to go through a step-by-step -step process when you're building a home. You can't yeah. do this until you do that. And it's, it's affected us. It really has. We, we've actually, I've experienced something down here in, in South Florida in the last couple of months. And I, I'm going to, I want to kind of ask you the, the, the question within your market, what you've seen since let's say May the 1st, because there was some big systematic economic changes that happened um, interest rate hikes, stock market took a bit of a whack. I found that at the high end, I've got buyers who were in contract three or four months ago, and I was speaking to an attorney in one situation. And she was telling me that nine or 10 of the deals that she was doing that were over $10 million, the buyers had looked at it and said, you know what, we're in a different world than we were two months ago. And they went to renegotiate the contracts, because their rates went up, things changed. Um, have you seen any behavioral changes? in Boston, and, and I'm particularly thinking about after May the 1st. I mean, we have, um, and that's really just a slowdown. We haven't had any, Boston's a little different from Florida when it comes to contracts. When you're, our inspection period is a little shorter. Um, we go, once you're under contract, you can't really renegotiate. Um, or your, your money is at risk. I mean, now if people walk away from the deal, they walk away from the deal. Yeah. Uh, we haven't had any transactions or uh, we haven't heard of people walking away from deals, even in the market overall. Uh, but we've had people who were hot decide that they're going to pump the brakes and sit on the sidelines for a little bit. They mm -hmm. want to see what is going on. And yeah. they want to see what's happening. And even if I, I, when I provide them the data, of downtown Boston. And I, you know, it's, I, I'm 33 years old. I, I wasn't really around the 2001 swing. Um, I was, I actually bought my first piece of property during 09. So I know that I can experience the financial crisis because I was a very young buyer and I was fortunate to buy a condo in that market, which 
ended up being okay because we all know over the long term, real estate only only goes up. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's the safest asset someone can purchase, no matter where you are. You could be in Wyoming. If you buy a piece of property in ten plus years, you make your money. Um, yeah. Unlike what we're seeing with the stock market in crypto right now. Oh, so, God, yeah. I mean, look, I know a lot of people, myself included, who lost a good chunk of money on the stock market. And um, one of the things I've noticed is that, look, real estate, especially with inflation right now. Um, is the best hedge against it. It's the best hedge against it. And if you're going to be safe long term, you know, real estate is where it's at. And I think that there are markets that are far more insulated. I know in South Florida, we have some condo markets that do oscillate. And I've got a report coming out, which goes into that in great detail, because there are sectors that are far more, shall we say, susceptible to negative economic impact. Um, and then the areas that are way more insulated, and even through economic cycles in the last 10 years, inventories never really pushed above 12 or 13 months. It's always stayed very, very low. Obviously, it went ridiculously low during the COVID period when it came all the way down to like one month or one and a half months. And it's still there in many cases. You have neighborhoods within Boston, no doubt, that are very insulated. Tell me a little bit about those, because that's good to know for those buyers who are looking at this as a, you know, a long-term play. So, I mean, some of the markets here, neighborhoods, I mean, in downtown Boston, for example, you have the Back Bay. That is, that's the, that's the neighborhood. What is Back Bay? Tell us a little bit about Back Bay, because I'm trying to think of the equivalent in Miami. The Back Bay is, um, I would say, where the highest income is, it's where your empty nesters go to. It's you have uh, brownstones on treeless on on ga all gaslight streets, brownstones, um, single family homes that are anywhere from fifteen hundred a foot all the way to four thousand a foot. So you have true Boston tradition. Um, you have these historic homes that have been gutted throughout. Um, you also have some high rises in shopping. So you can have three or four residential streets, Marlborough, Beacon, Calm Ave, three in a row. And then you hit Newberry Street, which is a strip of stores. Um, and that's where you have some of your, you have your Chanel, you have your Louis Vuitton, your Gucci, your Prada, um, your restoration hardware, one of the biggest restoration hardware stores is on Newberry Street. I mean, it's a hop skip away from these premier streets where these big brownstones are. You've also had these brownstones be converted into floor through residences. Um, so you have, for example, in 2022, there was a building at 29 Calm Ave where they converted them to about five or six floor through residences. Each residence traded at nine plus million, 3,400 a foot. It's not, a, it's a full wow. service building. They have a doorman. So it's like what you see in the movies sometimes. It's, you know, these, this, this doorman who is a part of the family of this building, but there's only five owners there. They're paying top, top dollar. So it's like a super boutique, ultra luxury super. condo environment, but a single family experience. You're paying, you're paying two to three dollars a foot in maintenance charges with no amenities simply for the safety and security of having this doorman who is a do-it-all kind of guy 
He'll walk the dog. He'll pick up your dry cleaning. And this is where the wealthy and the rich live in Boston. It's the back bay. Um, you have Copley, Copley Mall, Prudential. You have some of the best restaurants. Gordon Ramsay just opened up a restaurant here. Contessa, brand new restaurant in the Newberry Hotel is Major Food Group. They just made their first, they just opened their first restaurant in Boston, Mario Carbone. Um, so we've got a Carbone down here in Miami. I think. Yeah, we do. We have a Carbone down here in Miami. Listen, we follow you guys. You know, you guys usually set the trend and Boston's a little behind, but we try our best to catch up. But you guys always set the bar. I think it's a be- I think it's a, a, a beautiful um, relationship with Boston and Miami because you've got some beautiful architecture. And it, it actually reminds me of obviously. Look, I'm from the UK, as you well know. Correct. Um, yes, it's very similar. Yeah. So exactly. So I, I was in the UK a couple of months ago, and if you go down to like Eaton Place, or if you go, I, I grew up in around Kensington. We have a lot of these uh, very very high end brownstone. Experience properties that are walking distance to like Oxford Street or you know name any of the big shopping areas through Chelsea. Really, really gorgeous stuff. So I, I I've got the vision in my mind, and we obviously don't have anything exactly like that in Miami. Our super high end is probably Gables Estate, something like that, which is like the old money neighborhood for Miami. Um, but it, it's interesting because I can see the appeal in in uh, that type of product. And obviously understanding why the numbers are where they are. With one thing, one thing you mentioned earlier, I'm going to come into now, we're going to kind of segue into it, is the, uh, as you said, education is a big backbone of the Boston market. And one thing I've observed um, is the situations that we're dealing with our rental markets right now. And in Miami, I get calls all the time from families with their kids going to University of Miami saying, Rents got really expensive, and they have. They've got like 46%. I think there was actually a piece that stated that Miami is like this crisis epicenter for the rental market because it's got so high, people are getting priced out. Students are having a hard time affording to affording the rental rates. With that in mind, in Boston, with the education levels have you got, has there been, with inflation, a systematic increase in the rental market in Boston as well? Yes, there is. Um, there's been a big jump in numbers rental-wise. I mean, I'm a landlord as well in some of these premier markets and neighborhoods. I mean, I went from getting 3000 to 3500 for for a one or small two-bedroom to getting four to 4500 4, So, and, and that's, you know, that's in a four or five unit building. But for these full-service apartment buildings, um, that don't have a, that are just strictly rental buildings. I mean, you have numbers that probably went up 30 to 35%. Um, during COVID, some people got in at a deal because as I mentioned earlier, people yeah. fled the city and these buildings were just empty. Um, but then they all came back and numbers went up and it's some of these people now who got in for 2,500 and are coming to the end of their lease and, they're getting a letter saying it's now 4,200 or 4,000. They're like, I got to get out of here. And yeah. now they're thinking, okay, maybe I should buy. And yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly it. Compare. You put it, if you can show someone a diagram or a, you know, the numbers, the breaking the breaking the numbers down rent versus buy, it's pretty similar. Even with the rates being five and a half or 
even approaching six, it's still a good rate compared to what rates were back in the day. I agree 100%. I mean, in Miami, it's the same thing. I say to families all the time, if your son or daughter is going to go through college for the next three to four years, um, you are better off buying a property they you know, get a two bedroom, they rent out one room to a friend, they live in one, their, their mortgage, even at the higher rates, even with taxes and insurance and everything thrown in, they're still saving a good chunk of change off what they would be on rent. And they're then paying off a mortgage, they're holding an asset that will appreciate long term. It makes little sense to rent. I know some people don't have a choice, they don't have the money to buy. But if you do have that option, it definitely seems more sensible. Correct. And what I try to do here as an advisor is, you know, let these, these uh, outsiders who have their kids going to college, let them know that we're not just a real estate team here, you know, we're a full time, hands on concierge service, we'll make sure that when your kids aren't in school, your asset is being taken care of. We add a management side to our business for no charge. Yeah. You know, we, these are, they're most likely buying in a full service building. We already have our contacts, our plumbers, our electricians, our cleaners. So we're just, you know, keeping an eye on these assets, making sure that, you know, their heat, for example, in Boston and Massachusetts, you have to worry about the heat being turned on to a certain level when these people are leaving to Florida, for example, you know, we have a team here that goes in, make sure that their their heat is on a certain temperature and all that. And that because people get nervous about, oh, I don't want to deal with it. Like when we're not there, you know, they want to just have their, but it's not, it's not much to deal with. They're not buying a house. They're buying an apartment yeah. or a condo and it's maintenance free. It's headache free. And you just have to kind of explain that to them and then show them the numbers based on appreciation over a five-year run in Boston. Yeah. You're a data guy. The data doesn't lie. Yeah, I was going to say that 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 is that that actually brings into my my final point I wanted to talk about which is look, you ran off some some you know your numbers. I mean George, you know your stuff. You you're an expert at it. And uh, down here in Miami, I'm known as a numbers guy. I I run a lot of reports. I have softwares. I you know, I'm always looking into the figures. I have certain ways of reading my market, but I want to step back a bit and I want to hear from someone in a different city within the same DE group who is a real student of the business. I mean, you are always searching, always learning, always evolving. And that's what I, I've noticed about you and your team. It's incredible to watch. What are you paying attention to in your markets? What's the data that you say, you know what, if you're going to make a decision, this is what you've got to look at. So, I look at the data on a 20 year run. I mean, I have the data going back to 2000, Dave. I mean, I could tell you right now in 2000 year to date today, we had 1400 transactions compared to today, we have 1635. I can tell you the absorption in 2000, exactly 2000 was only at 1.3 billion. Today, we're at 2.4 billion. Talk about, uh, help people understand absorption, because I know for those who are watching, they might go, what is, what is absorption rate? What does that mean? It's total sales. It's the total number of real estate volume. It's everything being absorbed in the market. So the total absorption overall, the number is everything that's been sold year, year to date, um, total, total value. So the absorption level today is how much the market has absorbed 
in transactions, in data, in, in, in volume. And we see, we, we see transactions going up. For example, I even have a breakdown of the total thousand dollar a foot sales compared to 2000. There were none. <laughs> I mean, now there's, you know, at a thousand a foot, at 2000 a foot, 3000 a foot, for example, we had no 3000 a foot sales in 2012. We now have 60. So you're seeing the market just go. And when you can show people a 20 year scale of the transactions of the values, it gives them a level of comfort that even the downturns, like I can go back to 09 and I can see in 09 year to date today, you know, in 09, there were 945 transactions year to date today. But then if you go to 2010, 1337, same, th same thing. So you can tell in nine, it, it was, it dipped and it went up. So even if you buy in it, it but the, the, the numbers were not down. They were down five to seven to 10%, just the volume, the transactions, same as today, people just wanting to sit on the sidelines yeah. a little bit. So long-term, I mean, that's, you're looking, you're looking at a super long-term view of the market so that if you're a buyer, you can really appreciate the, the amount of value growth that you have from buying real estate. Um, That's it. Long-term play. I've always looked at real estate as a long-term play. As someone who bought in 2009 during the financial crisis, I actually bought right before numbers even dipped. There's, there was a slowdown. And you know, I bought a condo for $300,000. It was a two bedroom. My brother and I bought it to live in it. And, you know, we didn't see much, much of a pre much of any appreciation for a year or so, but I still have that today. And it just appraised recently $940,000. You know, it's a rental property for me. I've had it rented. So my number there has, has tripled yeah. over, over, I mean, 12, 13 years. So good investment. Good investment decision. It's a, it's a good investment. And, you know, overall, if, if someone wants to come and buy a piece of property from me, and I'm sure it's the same with you, and say, you know, this is a two to three year plan, and I'd like to double my money. I can't, I can't guarantee that. And I can't even, I don't have any data that shows that. Yeah, I think. Long run, you, you can make money. Yeah, I think when you give advice, people say to me, what's going to happen in two or three years time? I'm like, I'd be a billionaire if I could answer that question. But six, six months, we can probably see down the horizon of what's going on because we're observing the behavior on the ground. I think the difference is that when you're analyzing and when I'm analyzing, we actually sell real estate for a living. We are on the ground, grassroots level, listening to the psychology, understanding that the mentality of the buyers and the sellers to know what to pay attention to of what they could do next and what the market's then going to do next. Um, and so when you come into, and I've got a few more questions for you just in terms of the analytics, the supply demand, I mean, obviously we've got population growth. We've got population growth in Miami, which is about 1%. And obviously we can see mass migration, huge amounts of migration into South Florida um, during the pandemic. What is the population kind of numbers in Boston and how does that play into your, like, where's your supply demand? How are you measuring that? So that, that's one thing that we want to add to our data. Um, the, the, the trouble is 
the people living in Boston and in, in Massachusetts overall, the high wealthy individuals, they're not primary residents here anymore. They're, they're buying, but they're obviously going to markets like Florida and they have secondary homes, um, even in the Hamptons or other parts of the country. But population, we're, what we're seeing here is a lot of people coming from the outside. Now, when we see like, for example, we're selling a building and we're, we're that's called the Parker, it's, um, it's on the cuff of the back bay in downtown and we have 50 contracts and people are asking where are the buyers? Are they local? Now they're local buyers because they live here, but they're not local buyers because they've been here for school for three or four years they weren't born and raised here and they're they're they have passports for different countries you know they're they're not citizens they have jobs they've got jobs from going to school here so they've got work visas so it's very difficult to see the population numbers wise on who's actually staying and leaving and living here full time i'm still working on getting that data but boston's like this they come, they go, they yeah. stay, they go, and it's it's different. It's um, tracking but- tracking the crowd is actually becoming, I think, universally a lot harder. Whichever city you're selling in, because people have a natural migratory aspect to their careers and their businesses and their jobs. One week they can be in Boston, the next week they can be in Miami, and they can be back and forth, back and forth, and How they're making tra- money. We can't track that. How are you tracking it? You're asking me, but like, what about you population wise in Miami? I feel like it might be, it's probably much more difficult than here. You know, we've got census data that comes out that says, you know, population grew by 0.74% to the, but it doesn't really matter. What matters is what we're looking at is the corporate development, the companies, the businesses that have put up locations here, because I think it's far more telling, especially when we're selling luxury real estate, because we're dealing with the, the top end of the food chain. And I think that when you understand, let's say there's 10 companies, you said to me earlier on, you know, you've got a company that just set up an office and they've got 130 staff. Okay, that is that has an impact. And I think if you if you track the companies moving in and their staff and their employment and how many people they've got in, and you can start to piece that together, which isn't easy. It's not like you can't just go out online and find this data. We have to become detectives to get all this information together. But once you do and you start to see the numbers grow, that is far more telling to where the supply and demand balance is going to shift from my my point of view in South Florida. And that that makes sense. And speaking of people migrating companies, isn't there a a billionaire who just uh, announced that he's going to be going down to Florida? Ken Ken Griffith, yeah. Yeah, the, the guy who owns Citadel. So there is a lot of people who don't know. Okay. If you're in Boston, you're watching this and you want to know what's going on. Brickell is the second biggest financial district in the U S it is a, is a core hub. And you've got a lot of banks, uh, hedge funds that have moved down. So you've got Bridgewater. Um, so if you, you know, Ray Dalio, he, he, uh, he bought a place down here. So he, they have an office. Millennium Group, they have an office. Citadel has an office and there's like a whole ream of private equity groups, hedge fund groups, guys in the financial world who have come down along with a lot of the tech as well. There's been a large amount of tech migration and I'm sure they're coming back, back, bouncing back and forth through multiple cities. Let's say Miami, Boston, Miami, Boston, as they are coming here to 
you know, let's say work four days of the week and they're down for the sunshine and then they're going back to an office that they have in Boston as they're pulling in new staff from, you know, all the great colleges that you have. Um, there is a, a huge amount of that activity going on now, now more than ever. And I think that um, it's, I think this is the way the world's going to be. It's not uh, standard corporate 50s America where people get in their box, drive to an office, start working nine to five. That, that, that lifestyle's gone. It's far more nimble, far more agile right now. And I think if you can understand that, and recognize that behavior, you have a much better sense of where the wealth is moving and how it's moving. I, I completely agree. Now, speaking of the wealth and these individuals moving and going back and forth, it's a question for you. Is there any way um, that you're tracking the, the number of private charters coming in, the amount, the amount of um, private airplanes coming into Florida, leaving Florida, I know that was something that was kind of brought up in the World Wealth Report. That's a great question. There's going to be a lot of private jets coming to Florida, whether they're coming for a day or a week or whatever it is, is that the number is going to be higher than ever. Yeah, yeah. No, there, there are some stats that come out. And, and obviously, look, I don't track the, 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 the jet traffic, but it's actually maybe I should. That's a good point. I know that we would have stats that would come out like during Art Basel. It would, it would set a Guinness World Record for the most number of private jets grounded on an airport in one moment. It was insane. And obviously, you've got Formula One and you've got Art Basel. And then, you know, we got, we got the World Cup, um, I think, in 26. So there's, every year, there's something. There's one reason. And we've got a number of private airports. So Opelika and uh, Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport. So... Um, good question. If anybody's watching this and they, they have that data, if you work for a, a jet company and you watch this, can you please get in contact with myself and George and, and give us some yes, information? Because that would be really maybe, helpful. Maybe maybe David and I will help out and uh, you know, refer you guys some of our high-end clients to, to use you for some charter services. There, there you go. There you go. There's motivation if you ever heard it. Well, George, this has been great. This has been an awesome um, chat conversation. For those who want to know a little bit more, see George's information will be flashed up at the bottom of the screen, as is mine. I think I want to leave everybody, the audience, with one understanding, which is there is real collaboration that exists. And if you want to be the smartest guy in the room, if you really want to know what's going on, you've got to have a good micro understanding of your market, but you cannot let your peripherals get you know, fuzzy, you've got to be aware of what's going on around you. And it's conversations like this, George, that I love, because it opens my eyes to the other markets. And I think that is that is, you know, that's the reality of the world. This synergy is um, all important, because it helps me understand the psychology of the, um, the buyers and sellers so much better. Um, and and we, we talk all the time. I mean, we're, we're doing this chat right now. But um, myself and George will chat, you know, once every week, once every two weeks, whenever it is, whenever we've, whenever we've got clients, we bounce back and forth. George, thank you. Give my best to your brother, Manny. Thank and you. to and your I team. Wanted, I wanted to say I'm sorry for your Miami Heat losing. To the oh, Boston Jesus. The, I was waiting the- for that. So if you don't know, George, if you go into George's Instagram, I've never, <laughs> I've never seen an agent go to so many basketball games as George. I'm kind of envious. It's, it's good for it's good for business, and I'm a diehard fan. I've been a fan since I was 
probably eight, nine years old. But, uh, you know, I was a Miami Heat fan for a little bit because one of my friends was, uh, was on the team. But uh, he's no longer there, so I'm back to just bleeding green. Uh, and, um, you know, it's going to be a fun couple of years going back and forth. So maybe next year we do some sort of, um, I don't know, some sort of bet. And, uh, yeah, I think so, because I look after a couple of Heat players. They're my clients, and you look after Celtic players. So I think there's, yep. there's something on the horizon. I don't know what, but we've got to work it. Absolutely. George, thank you again. Thank really you. appreciate it. Thank you all for watching and get ready for another David Siddons Group podcast. Better decisions coming very soon. George, thank you, my friend. Be well. Take care. Good one. Bye. Bye.